Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Since 2021, June 19th, or Juneteenth as it's popularly known, has been a federal holiday commemorating the end of enslavement in the United States. This week, we're celebrating the holiday with a trio of African-American chefs who discuss the inspiration they draw from their spiritual ancestors. First, we hear from Chef Serene Mabey of Dakar Nola about his plans for a grand Juneteenth feast in honor of the holiday. Next, Chef Ash Bell McElveen tells the fascinating story of James Hemings, the enslaved man who was in fact the founding father of American fine dining. And finally, chef and cooking school director Dee Levine talks with us about Lena Richard, the early 20th century black woman who by the 1940s had become the Crescent City's premier caterer, a renowned cookbook author, and the first local TV food personality. It's time to celebrate freedom, fortitude, and of course, food, on this week's Louisiana Eats. Food allowed me to nurture and tell them stories and share where I'm from and claim who our people are and where they come from. That's Chef Serene Mabey, whose approach to food as a means of cultural connection shines brightly at his modern Senegalese restaurant, Dakar Nola. Serene's efforts have garnered national attention, including being named a James Beard Award finalist both last year and again this year for Emerging Chef. Serene was born in Harlem but grew up in Senegal. He returned to the United States, attended culinary school, then worked in New York and San Francisco before arriving at the Commander's Palace Kitchen in New Orleans. His personal culinary vision and Dakar Nola brand was first revealed at pop-up dinners around town, where Serene would explain to guests the cultural significance of each course as it was served. His dream of running his own restaurant became a reality in 2022 with the opening of Dakar Nola, where Serene weaves the story of those who came before him into every bite. You know, I've been in New Orleans now for about seven years. And when I came here, my dream, the, the goal was to work at Commanders for three months. And I was I ended up working for the company for three years and worked in all the restaurants. But where I sit now and have this restaurant, I mean, I think it's just so, it's still a dream just waking up to 
a restaurant that I know that I'm the chef and owner. It's a dream for all of us. And I'll tell you what, pretty quickly, the national news took notice of you. There was a great article in the New York Times, for instance, about the work that you're doing. Would you explain your last meal concept and what's going on behind the scenes and right in front of all the diners' noses at DeCarnola? Yeah. I mean, I think that I believe that food is a language, and I truly believe that in food is a language is also a way to communicate, to educate, to connect, to break barriers, and to, most importantly, to feel good. So, you know, one of my last trips to Dakar, I visited an island called Gore Island, which is many of our ancestors, which the door of no return is. And after reading the book High and the Hog and Beyond Gumbo by Dr. Jessica Harris and many other books, when I went to um, Senegal, when I went to Dakar and visited Gore Island, I was just so present within the moment and the guy that was giving me a tour around the island I asked him a question about you know he was sharing all this rich history and so on and so forth and ended the conversation I asked him can you please tell me or do you know of any food that um, our, our people ate and he quickly shared well if you know they put young girls children in one room and men one room and women another and to see the room and how small they are and how just imagine how packed it was and some of them refused to eat he's like well if they didn't weigh 60 kilos they would not get into that boat because they know they were not going to make it through the middle passage I'm like well what so what they fed them he's like well they had to fatten them up and very quickly because it's an investment to them. And some refused to eat, but those that ate, it was black peas and palm oil, which one of the dishes that did, one of the last meal they ate to fatten them up. And what is so interesting about that is that growing up in Senegal, I had some small version of that dish, of eating black peas and palm oil, and never knew that that was the last meal for many of our ancestors, you know. So when I heard the story, it touched me a very emotional way. So when I came back to New Orleans and started doing Tasty Menu, um, I truly wanted to incorporate that dish and that story. Um, There's so much truth into it. There's a lot going on. Every time I have the opportunity to cook it, you know, even speaking it right now, I mean, it just brings me very, very an emotional place, you know. So now we could eat that dish and and remember and just remember the the hardship they went through you know so for me to bring it back and share that story is very powerful you were kind of like how come this new orleans food is so much like the food i knew from home right and it was very refreshing to see someone with that attitude and I think you opened Pandora's box. Hmm. Throughout my whole childhood, I, I never had stability of 
living in a place for more than four or five years. Um, you know, born in America, raised in Senegal, came back to America, and ha- and I felt like outsider outsider to a country that I was born in. So I had to. When people ask me where you from, where you born, I mean, where you from, I automatically say Senegal, because nine times out of ten, they just assume that I'm African, which I am, but I'm also African American, as you said, you know. So I think throughout the years when I came here and being in New Orleans now for about seven years, I learned a lot about food just in general. I realized what food done for me. You know, food gave me hope. It gave me the opportunity to want to connect with people, do amazing work with the community, and give back to people that works for me. But most importantly, help me to continue my education. And I believe the more I learn, the less naive I become. Food allowed me to nurture, to nurture the soul and tell them stories and share where I'm from and claim who our people are and where they come from. Tell me about how you came up with this Juneteenth idea and what your first celebration at Ben Burkett's farm last summer was like. Um, The idea was... You know, if you look at, I feel like our people were stripped away from their home in the motherland to bring it to a, a place that were not their home and they were living in such a brutal condition. But one thing that stuck with them is their cooking method. And I realized when everyone started paying attention more about Juneteenth, so I learned about it, I was like, well, I need to gather a few chefs and figure out a way how can we cook outside because that's what our people did. And earlier we t- I talked about claiming, claiming things. And I think that if anything, you know, we a lot of the Southern cooking is truly inspired by West African cooking. And I think that doing outside cooking, cooking live fire, I think to me it just speaks to me. And being with other people from different parts of culture but lives in New Orleans, I think that we all have something in common and share that same, through food, we could make people realize who were our people. Tell me about the event last year. I mean, it it was, I mean, first, you know, we spent a night there out the farm with me and with another chef, and we had the opportunity to, you know, did a live, uh, um, live, live goats, and did a traditional way how we do it back home, and and we cooked dinner at the farm, and the electricity went out. It just reminded me so much of home. I mean, you know, in the middle of the night, you're just hearing, you know, all types of animal noises. Wake up early in the morning, you know, the the birds waking you up, the chicken. I mean, it just felt like home. You know, it felt home in many ways. It just really made me realize, you know the beauty of how our people used to live, given the circumstance, they still find joy through cooking. Having over 100-plus people get picked up from Congo Square, 
known that story where our ancestors used to go there on Sundays and dance and et cetera to get picked up there and do this two-hour drive, come to the farm, and have this beautiful cocktails and leading to other chefs making appetizers through um, music, live poetry, um, speakers. Um, I mean, it was, I feel like it was an experience that it only makes sense to replicate just that day of Juneteenth, you know. So, and this year I'm excited. We are doing it at Grow That Farm in the city of New Orleans, so. Serene, what is special to you about Grodat Farm? Um, why did you select them for your next Juneteenth celebration? One was I wanted to get more people to um, experience Juneteenth. So having it somewhere near the city was a little bit more convenient. And secondly was what the work that they're doing with the youth is something that I'm all about. I think to to make change, you need to start with the youth. You know, when you're young, you don't have your minds clear. And especially to teach youth about farming, if those tradition doesn't stay within us, you know, we'll have, we'll have a lot of problems down the line. So seeing a place like that, just doing a collaboration, doing my Juneteenth there, I think it would also bring a lot of awareness to people from New Orleans or people visiting from New Orleans about who go that farm is and the work that they do with the community and how important, how much impact it would have on all of us down the line. Well, bravo for shining light on that very important program over at New Orleans City Park. Thank you, Serene. I look forward to joining you on your journey as long as I'm capable. Thank you. And I'm honored. Thank you. That was Chef Serene Mabey of Dakar Nola. Serene is hosting this year's Juneteenth celebration entitled Afro Freedom, Afro Feast on Sunday, June 18th at Grodat Farm in New Orleans City Park. Tickets for the dinner can be found online at exploretalk.com. You'll find the link on our website. I'm Poppy Tooker and Chef Serene Mabey is always cooking up some good Louisiana Eats. Does the beignet have African kin? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. 
nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now celebrating their centennial by donating one million bowls of beans to Second Harvest Food Bank. What a way to say thank you to the community they call home. To learn more and view the new video by award-winning documentary filmmaker Joe York, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Does the beignet have African kin? What's the true origin of New Orleans beignets? In early conversations with Chef Serene Mabey, I remember his wide-eyed amazement when talking about the beignets he'd known from childhood in Africa. His were called puff puffs, and there was no powdered sugar involved. But that's where the differences end. Read every long-acknowledged history of New Orleans beignets, and they all claim that ours arrived with the French settlers. But the first slave ships bearing Africans, well acquainted with puffy balls of fried dough, docked here within the first year of the city's founders. And in short order, who do you think was doing the cooking? It's one of those mind-boggling bits of food cross-culture we'll never know for sure. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Thomas Jefferson is often credited with bringing fine dining to the United States, following his diplomatic mission to France in 1784. But actually, it was a young enslaved man named James Hemings who was the true founding father of fine dining here. James was the brother of Sally Hemings, an enslaved woman owned by Jefferson who famously bore multiple Jefferson children. In James' position as a valet, he traveled with his owner to France, where Jefferson saw to his training in kitchens there. The documentary film, James Hemings, Ghost in America's Kitchen, explores the compelling tale of the young man who was really responsible for changing the course of American dining. The film's driving force, Chef Ashbel McElveen, took a break from his busy restaurant kitchen to talk about Hemings, as well as his own culinary journey, one that's taken him along a similar path. My name is Chef Ashbel McElveen. I'm the founder of the James Hemings Society, and I have just completed my film, Ghost in America's Kitchen. 
I am so happy to see you, Ashbell, and what a fascinating, fascinating story both your tale is as well as James Hemmings. So let's first talk about you. Um, you grew up in South Carolina. Well, I grew up in a family that thought good food was a birthright. And um, I literally, on both sides of the family, on my mother's side, were incredible, incredible cooks. And as a matter of fact, her brother was um, an executive chef at the country club, at a country club in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And my father's family also were barbecue experts. And the family made moonshine and bourbon. So here you are in South Carolina and, you know, the, the decades of your life that you're growing up in. Yes. I, um, I, I was quite lucky to be uh, growing up at a time when Southern flavors were at its peak. And the proficieners, the cooks of that incredible Southern regional taste were still alive and in their prime. So I was very lucky to have grown up in, in that part of Southern regional cooking. Um, you experienced some very, very cruel and deep racism at the most primal level. I, um, I grew up in 1950s South Carolina, and I went to school segregated by law. And um, people, a lot of people today don't understand what that meant. And what that meant was that I could not go to school with a white person simply because of the color of my skin. So there were completely segregated schools for whites and for blacks. And it was not an equal education. Um, but that society also um, forced that forced segregation actually provided me in a community with a community of doctors, lawyers, and Indian chiefs. So I actually grew up with incredible role models just down the street, college professors, architects, doctors, lawyers, and, um, and people that picked cotton. And that was an incredible experience. Ashbell, tell me about your mother. My mother was a working chef at the time she died. Unfortunately, had a heart attack, and we called the ambulance from the local hospital. And the ambulance did arrive, got into the house, and I could hear the attendant literally, you know, it rings in my ear to this day. We can't put her in here. I'll lose my job. This is for white people only. You got to call the color funeral home. And, you know, in a town of about 20,000 people with only two black funeral homes and both their ambulances were out dealing with other people's relatives and other emergencies. So for a good 20 minutes to half an hour, we put cold compresses on her head and comforted her as much as possible until she finally passed away. And um, and I've got to say, 
I have not had a life of recrimination. And um, that was the situation that millions of Blacks were in, in the South. So friend, um, you at the age of 19, go off and live and study cooking in France. You go on to have a restaurant in London. This is really where you acquired your deep, deep professional culinary knowledge. It was, I was a student at university and um, I had been told by my professor, my French professor at the university in, in America that uh, Blacks don't speak French. So you should be happy you got a C plus on that exam. And I thought I had aced it. So I said to myself, I said, well, let me go, let me go over here and see what's going on. And I got accepted and, and spent that incredible junior year abroad and learned, uh, wow, an in, in incredible experience in food. And I discovered a whole country that thought good food was a birthright. How and where does James Hemings come into your story, Ash Bell? James Hemings is so important to not just American culinary history, but the global foodways. He was the young American that was taken to Paris by Thomas Jefferson for the express purpose of being trained as a French chef. And he returned to America and slavery, his choice, I very firmly believe that, when he could have stayed in France as a free man, but he came back because he believed in the words of Thomas Jefferson. He believed in the words of the Constitution. And Black people from Christmas Attics on has always agitated for the democracy and inclusion of the American Constitution. Why is James Hemings so important? The great thing about James Hemings coming back to America in 1790 is that he brought incredible dishes back to America like macaroni and cheese, French fries, creme brulee, meringues, whipped cream, French vanilla ice cream, okay? And the kind of ice cream that was made with a custard, okay? That was made with eggs. Before that, it was just frozen cream. Adding the eggs to it literally meant that it was a more stable concoction and that once, once frozen, it would stay frozen longer. So that's what James Hemings brought back to America. They say, oh no, ice cream was in America. Yes, it was in America before then, but it was the consistency of a thick milkshake. It was not in the scoopable variety that people understand ice cream is today. And, and the fact that as a part of his contract with Thomas Jefferson, for his freedom, Jefferson even wrote in that contract that he was to teach his brother Peter everything he had learned in France. 
And so James did and opened the first cooking school in America to do that as a part of that contract with Jefferson. But he's not recognized as opening the first cooking school in America. So, you know, he when James Hemings was in France and acquired all these yeah. cooking skills, I mean, Jefferson yeah. made sure Hemings was uh, was a house slave before he went to France, right? He, he was a valet to Thomas Jefferson, which meant that he traveled, he and his brother, um, Robert, actually traveled most of the time with Jefferson. They were his valets and drivers, um, coach drivers. And so James Hemings and Robert were in the room when the Declaration of Independence was, was signed and codified. That's the, the real history of James Hemings. What about that cookbook, Ash Bell? You know, oh. Thomas Jefferson has been credited with bringing French food to the United States and popularizing it here. And then to when I learned in your documentary about that little cookbook piece, it yes. really riled me as a cookbook author because we've been getting it all wrong. You should be riled by the Virginia Housewife, which was written by... Randolph, one of Martha's relatives and Jefferson's relatives. Mary Randolph, and right? Mary Randolph, yes. And it's going to take a whole bunch of historians to dissect that cookbook and to really retrieve James Hemings' lawfully made recipes. Jefferson didn't think that American enslaved Black people had taste but it was the fine, sophisticated taste of James Hennings that Jefferson relied on in his famous Paris salons, where he invited all of the Enlightenment and even royalty. But it was James Hennings's food that satisfied the most discerning palates in Paris at the time. Yes, that table diplomacy. And all of them loved his cooking and remarked that the food was excellent. Eventually, Jefferson does free him. You know, he fulfills that yes. obligation of those three yes. years of teaching his brother how to replicate those dishes that Jefferson right. loved. When, yes. when Thomas Jefferson gets elected president, what happens then? Let's get it clear. He was not elected. He was appointed by the Congress president. So he, he was not elected by a vote of the people in that first term. When he was appointed, he sent his secretary, Martin Short, to Baltimore where James Hennings was cooking in a tavern to ask him to come, to tell him to come to the White House to be the chef. And James Hennings replied to Short, well, if only Mr. Jefferson can write me a few words of invitation, as was normal for any man being offered a job at the time, is you write a letter of invitation. And Jefferson refused, and James stood up to the most powerful man in his universe and did not go because he didn't want to 
He didn't want Jefferson to call him like he did when he was a slave. You know, so he refuses to go to the White yes. House and he he dies an early death in obscurity. And well, and it, and, it, and it is a controversial death because it was said that he died of drink. Well, I was like, well, show me another reference to anybody in Baltimore who died from drink. <laughs> because every man, woman, and child drank alcoholic beverages. Well, I am just so grateful that you have taken uh, James Hemings under your wings, so to speak, and you're telling his story, a story that really needs to be told in A Ghost in America's Kitchen. And thank you, Poppy, so much. I'm so glad to have been on. That was Chef Ashbel McElveen, founder of the James Hemings Society and producer of the documentary, James Hemings, Ghost in America's Kitchen. The documentary is currently available for viewing on Amazon Prime. You'll find the link on our website at poppytooker.com. Next up, Chef Dee Levine talks about the inspiration she draws from early 20th century chef, cookbook author, and New Orleans TV personality, Lena Richard, who broke down barriers like she was breaking eggs. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. <music> New 
New Orleans native Chef D. Levine spends countless hours teaching students how to prepare quintessential Creole dishes, such as gumbo, jambalaya, and bananas foster at her delightful Ruse School of Cooking in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. When the kitchen gets hot and the days get long, Dee draws inspiration from the life of Lena Richard. This early 20th century entrepreneur was the first black woman to open a cooking school in New Orleans, one of her myriad accomplishments. My name is Dee Levine. I'm the owner of the Delightful Rue School of Cooking. It's a revolutionary business that you're running. You're the first black woman to run a cooking school in the New Orleans area in 80 years. And I believe a lot of your inspiration comes from a still largely unknown black female entrepreneur that yeah. is very close to your heart. Yeah. So that would be Chef Lena Richard. So Lena Richard was a phenomenal chef, an amazing woman. Um, she was born in Louisiana in the late 19, I believe she was born in 1892 uh, in New Roads, Louisiana. But she grew up here in New Orleans and she kind of got her cooking bones, I would say, around 14. She was, her mother actually was working for a local family here in New Orleans, the Barron family. And at 14, they kind of hired her to kind of make breakfast for the kids, right? Just a small task. You know, you're doing breakfast, a little light lunch, N nothing super important at that point. So she kind of fell in love with doing what she was doing. Um, and I think it kind of made her want to impress just a little bit to say, listen, I can do more than make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, or I can make more than grits. And so she started to just kind of, you know, test the waters a little bit. Um, I, I believe she got invited to help do a brunch. And that's where I would say the, the fishing line went out. And it hooked, and that pretty much the rest is history. That's what really, really did it for her. So Lena Richard then becomes truly New Orleans' premier caterer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think she was 26, um, still working with the Varon family, and that's when she actually went to culinary school, per se. And where'd she go? She went to the Fannie Farmer Cooking School in Boston, um, which is interesting that she had to travel all the way to Boston, right, to kind of get this professional credential to say, yes, you know, you're trained to be a chef. Except, D, <laughs> when she got there, what did she really learn? Um, she learned that she already knew it. I mean, that she had it already. I think that was one of the biggest things that she learned. And it was so interesting that even within the class with the other women that were in her class, they were taking notes on what she was doing um, you know, I guess to say, oh, my goodness, like, all right, we got to sit back, pay attention. She actually knows something. As I understand it, they had to poll the white class members to see if they'd take the black woman that, up in correct. Boston. Yep. It was an eight-week course, and before she could go or be accepted, they had to reach out to every single woman that was in that class to make sure that it was okay. She literally had to have their permission to join that class. So she comes back to New Orleans 
and she's the premier caterer. And I guess everybody wants her recipes, and that's how her cookbook gets published in 1939. Yeah, so of course she's still cooking, and people are trying her food, and it's not like, oh my goodness, make that again for me. It's like, I need the recipe for that. And, you know, that is really what kind of pushed her into saying, you know what, maybe, you know, for me, I'm like, she's probably thinking, I got to stop with the calls, right? Everybody's trying to hound me down. They want this recipe, that recipe. Maybe I'll put them all together. And then I'm sure the idea blossomed into her publishing the very first African-American Creole cookbook. She wasn't writing this cookbook for rich New Orleans white ladies. Who was? Who did she really write the book for? She was writing it literally for her community. Um, she could see the disparity in pay, um, somewhat a little bit lack of skill, and that's one of the reasons why she created the cooking school. She wanted to teach people in her actual community how to you know, give white glove service, how to really up your game in this in this industry that you're working in right now, but have enough skill that they can pay you more. That that really was the focus of this cooking school. And whether that was actually working in the kitchen or front of the house, she wanted to make sure that you were prepared, that you could do almost any job, you could demand more money. And so there's this dichotomy that exists where she opens up a restaurant, and then she gets a great offer up north, and she goes up north. But she keeps coming back here. Yeah. What's up with that? Um, it's just about being rooted, I think. Um, obviously, her family was still here. She loved the people of this city of New Orleans. She loved New Orleans. And, you know, it doesn't matter how long you are away or where or how far, you always seem to come back. And, I mean, I could speak of that myself. Um, but, yeah, she really had an attachment to the city. I think she saw where it could go and try to single-handedly change um, some of the treatment and how people were being treated and pay to give them a little bit of a better life. In 1949, the Stern family and WDSU, they're just getting their feet wet in this new frontier of television, and there's Lena. Yeah, but that should tell you a little bit about just her skill level and, and how great she was, how wonderful of a chef she was, that even women that didn't own televisions were like, oh, my goodness, we have to tune in. I want to see, you know, what is this magic that she's doing? Her food is fantastic. I want to... You know, they were, I'm sure, applauding from the back. Like, yes, put this lady on TV. You know, we need to see this every single week as much as we can. And it actually, that's what turned into her being on live twice a week. Twice a week, 1940s. Tuesdays and Thursdays. That's right. I wish we could watch one of those episodes. Yeah, I, I do too. Um, I know that it's just been something missing in history. You know, that, of course, the news station was just starting they didn't have enough equipment to record. They were literally just broadcasting live. You know, when we think about the time, 
in the city of New Orleans, I don't even think people owned that many televisions in the city. Not so 1949. it was no, it was all still brand new technology, you know. So it's like if you wanted to see something, it was almost a big social gathering. Everybody's going to one house to watch this thing, whatever it was going to be on TV, and you know, it kind of went from there. But them not having the ability to record is why we don't have any of her actual recorded shows before her untimely death and she was so young what was she 50 yeah yeah she was 50 years old how in the world would you tell me about her frozen food business that is incredible to know that you had such a following that you could prepare meals have them frozen and packed and shipped I mean, we're still in this early 1940s era of Jim Crow South segregation that you actually have a frozen a frozen food company. Like, that's incredible. I mean, just the thought of that. And that's why I always say I feel like she was a lady from the future that got picked up and dropped off in the past. She was doing things so well ahead of any anyone that would dare be her competition i would say that she was she was an excellent entrepreneur she was definitely a well trained businesswoman so tell me d with that one beautiful book that she wrote in 1939 which i guess has really been your only guidepost to her recipes what of lena richards cooking stays with you. So I will say that she has minimal ingredients with really big flavor. Um, As I was working on one of her dishes, the shrimp bisque that I did for the Smithsonian, when I first looked at that recipe, I'm like, no way, this has to be a mistake, right? This is, something's missing. There's not enough ingredients. There's not enough what we call seasoning, right? There's not enough trinity in this dish. I, I don't even know how she accomplished this. And so I obviously set out on the mission to recreate the food that she was making and found that two things influenced that. Definitely fresh is better, which is always the thing, but it's time, right? She, they had more time. When I think about the differences in the world we live in now as opposed to the one that she was cooking in, they didn't have as many distractions. They didn't have as many uh, things that kept them awake or away from the house or, you know, out and about. I mean, my day is filled from the time I wake up and I open my eyes and my feet hit the floor. I am busy until I'm back in bed. And I think just the time of being able to cook those dishes, allowing the flavors to actually cook and shine through is definitely something that I will never forget out of her out of her cookbook. Well, I'm so glad you've been taking those cooking lessons from the ghost of Lena Richard. And I'm so grateful that we could bring her story to my Louisiana Eats listeners. Yeah, definitely. I'm happy that I'm able to just speak on a legacy of a woman that was incredible. Thanks, Dee. You're welcome. That was Chef Dee Levine, owner of the Delightful Ruse School of Cooking, located at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans.
That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of episodes are available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you're looking for a Poppy's pop-up drag brunch, join us on the last Sunday of each month through the summertime, June, July, and August at our home away from home, Tujac's Restaurant in New Orleans, French Quarter. You can make reservations and learn more by visiting tujacsrestaurant.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, and the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. And from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, writer Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.